Oh, hey, Evan. Hey, Joe. Hey, what time is it? It's time for another episode of Runtime Run Rundown. Let's, Let's go. go. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Runtime Rundown. I am Joe. That's Evan over there. That's me. Nope, That's I don't you. know why I did that. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> I just came in super weird. That's me. Well. That's me. Uh, I just realized, you know, we, t- we sometimes talk about how we do this dance before during the music uh, to get to get hyped up for the show. I just realized I have been doing this dance in front of a... Uh, it's not a, it's not an open window, but like it's a window with a shade in front of it. And for sure, whoever's on the other side of that shade, which is my entire neighborhood, can see my arms swinging around and everything. I wonder what they think when the, when that happens, whoever sees me. Are they close enough to see it, though? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's like it's just over the whole neighborhood. There's like a whole street of houses down the down the down the way. Oh, nice. Okay. Well, I mean, they probably think this is a really fun loving guy. That's right. Yeah, yeah That's this right. guy. Really and it is. They'd life. be right. They would be right. You are a fun-loving guy. I see it every time. Uh, no matter how grumpy or grouchy I am, as soon as that first key key sounds from <laughs> Hina come in, uh, Hina is the guy who made that song. Person, yeah. I don't know. Uh, it just gets it just puts me in a better mood. So yeah, absolutely. Uh, but Joe, how's it going? Since last we spoke, mm-hmm. how are things? Uh, things are good. Things are good. Uh, let's see. Today I. Had the opportunity to so basically we we uh, we, we usually have some like childcare for for my my little four year old and our childcare fell through today and I didn't have anything going on in the afternoon so I was like I am gonna take my my little guy I'm gonna take him around for a little daddy da- you know father son day so we uh, we went down to Harvard Square we got him a treat we went to the book show the bookstore and we read a bunch of like uh, kids books and stuff. Uh, it was really fun. We read, he's really into star Wars. So we read a little, like a kid star Wars book, um, which are great, but you got to watch out for kids, star Wars books because lots of spoilers. And I, ha- whenever we get a star Wars, anything, I got to scroll, I got to flip through it to make sure that there's the connection between Anakin Skywalker and Darth Vader is like miles apart so that they don't they don't ever say and then anakin skywalker had luke and leia and became darth vader oh sorry spoilers if you've if you've never seen star wars wait why are you keeping that away i don't get it wait really because like that's the luke i'm your father like that's the uh that's the moment that like when i became a father i was like this is the moment in that's the moment I can't wait for is when I get to watch Star Wars with my kid and watch him realize that. Oh, Darth he Vader hasn't has, seen it yet. No, 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 no. Uh, this makes more sense. You you gave no context. To oh, that sorry. Lead in. Yeah. Sorry, sorry. That like he hasn't watched a Star Wars movie. Speaking of. He hasn't even. Children, he doesn't. He's not ready to watch Moana. There's no way he's ready to watch. Well, you're having Star him read Star Wars books, man. <laughs> I don't know the timeline of children's psychology. I think I watched uh, The Good Son at like five, which is an R-rated oh, movie man. where Macaulay Culkin like killed a kid with a BB gun. Yeah. Uh, so maybe my parents weren't as conscientious as yours as you are. <laughs> Uh, I speaking of Star Wars stuff, I tried to watch Obi Wan recently, the series in Disney, because um, I really liked Andor. I thought Andor was awesome. I gotta watch. Uh, it. So I started the first. You haven't watched it yet. Mm. Andor. I liked Andor personally, it, and part of the reason is because it was an actual character-driven show in the Star Wars universe. Yeah, that's what I hear. Obi Wan is not that. Um, oh. So I I was excited because the first like two minutes of Obi Wan were super cool. 
And then it just fell off a cliff after that. What I figured with Obi-Wan is it's good for children. It seems like it was written for the brain of an eight-year-old, maybe. Like the the dialogue is 100% on the nose. Um, like so on the nose. And I just think, who who is this for? Because it's gritty. People are dying in it. And the dialogue is like, I disagree with you because I'm motivated by fear. And then you're like, <laughs> and I think that we should do this because it's good for the empire. I don't know. It's just like the most stilted bullshit dialogue. So I wish it was better. That's all I'm saying. But it could no. potentially be good enough for you know a kid to enjoy because the dialogue is so bad it might be understandable. Yeah, you know, that's that's yeah. not a bad idea. We'll we'll preview so silver it lining. Me. You know, yeah, yeah preview it. Uh, yeah. What's going on with you? We're trying to keep it tight this episode. We're gonna try and try and keep it keep it slim. Uh, what's going on with you this this week? Uh, let's see. Not a ton. We're gearing up. Uh, for a vacation in a little while, so we're going to we're going to do a Caribbean vacation in a couple of weeks. So we're you know buying random stuff, you oh, know, yeah. bathing suits, whatever. We got our call from them today. We're doing a super bougie voca- vacation, so you know this is we'll probably never do another one like this. But we got a call for our like pre onboarding, uh, whatever, because we're going for like seven nights. They they called us and asked us what type of mattress that we prefer to sleep on. They're like, do you like a firm mattress or do you want a memory foam? <laughs> so like we had to we get to choose the mattress and the sheets and stuff like that. They're like, do you like an Egyptian cotton or whatever? It was bizarre and really exciting. Uh also our food preferences because we have someone's gonna cook for us. Uh, which is really exciting. Yeah. Wow. So this is gonna be awesome. Um I am thrilled. And nice. Yeah, so that's well, you that's deserve it. it. Yeah, no, you deserve thanks, vacation, I guess. No one deserves this vacation. <laughs> it's absurd, but I'm really excited about it. Uh, and uh, that that's it for this week. So I'm going to ask you a very important question: uh, What are you reading? I am reading an article called Things They Didn't Teach You About Software Engineering. Um, and it's basically a bunch of stuff that uh, you will know. This this article will, will, will ring true to you if you have been in software engineering uh, for a little while. But it's things that you probably wouldn't know uh, if you're kind of looking at a software career from the outside. So I think, you know, Evan and I read through all these. There's like a bunch of different um, sections and we read through all of them and we're like, yep, I identify with that. I identify with that. I identify. So we're like, we got to gotta do this article. So that's the TLDR. Um, where do you want to start with this? Uh, so like, yeah, there, there's what? Uh, 10, 10 concepts in here. Um, sort of that, that we could go through. The first, I'll just start at the beginning. The first thing they don't teach you about software engineering and is you rarely write something from scratch. So I feel like when you're getting into this, you're the only thing you do is greenfield projects. It's like um, yeah. you know, you start up your repository, you go pick your tech and whatever. <laughs> it's like a, you got like a little shopping basket, like ooh, and then you want to pick the things, and then you, and then you build the stuff, and then um, then you get to a team and you're working on. Ah, uh, my gosh! I think when I first so for instance, for instance, when I first got to Wayfair. I was working on something called like assembly services where it was, it was a checkbox that was underneath 
the buy button that said like, do you want us to assemble this for you? That was the whole thing. And it was like, my whole job was working on that checkbox. <laughs> uh-huh. And uh, I'm like, oh, sweet. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> you know, it's just these <laughs> tiny little changes that you're making to like, oh, there's a bug in the checkbox. If you render it in a, in this particular cell phone, um, you know, like stuff like that. So you just, yep. it is so true. You almost never have greenfield projects. Um, I, yeah, I was going to say. I, like, I think I've had one, the, two. Yeah, you almost never hear the term greenfield, and when you do hear it, it's like this unicorn in a fantasy world that you're <laughs> never going to see. Like greenfield. Oh, green! Imagine if this were a greenfield project. Like you just, you don't. Uh, it's not a. It's not often a reality, unless maybe you're starting it like a startup or something like that. And you're building something completely new. But I think at, at most companies, uh, yeah, you're going to be basically like wa- walking into working on a code base that has a lot of history in it. And uh, uh, yeah. History is a good word for it because history can be both good and bad. Uh, yeah. There's triumphs yeah. in history and there's failures in history, right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I will say on the on the on the plus side, it kind of gives you like you know, uh, it gives you a lot of context when you when you walk into a code base that already exists. I don't know. There's something nice about that. You 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 get to read through a bunch of code that's already there, and uh, you kind of I don't know. Usually, I find that I learn some new uh, you know a new ways new ways of thinking about problems when I when I read through a code base that somebody else has written. That I, I find this a lot with open source. Well, where I'll, where I'll look through a code base and I'll say, oh, I, it's interesting. I wouldn't have thought of doing it that way. And, um, you know, we were talking last week about the idea of coming to, uh, coming to a situation with a sense of curiosity instead of, uh, instead of like uh, antagonism. And I always try and, yeah. you know, be, you know, think instead of saying, oh, why'd they do it that way? Like I try, I think, oh, why'd they do it that way? That's, you know. uh, we talked a little while ago, what was the article? It was the, um, uh, like ways to be a better, the 10 ways, like be a better software engineer, I think. And one of them was to experience uh, being the single, like most knowledgeable person in a project and experience being the least knowledgeable person in a project. And I think this is one of those examples because if you're, when you're starting up, you're making all of your things from scratch and you know them intimately. So like in, in all the things that you build, you're the domain expert. And then you go to a team and it's a, an established code base, you right off the bat are the least knowledgeable person in that group. No matter how big your technical expertise is, or how, how broad your technical expertise is, you know less than everybody else in the room about that particular application. And I think that's a cool place to be because you, you, like you, you put the white belt back on, so to speak, and you learn from the ground up. And that experience of learning uh, like unbounded learning because you know nothing is really valuable, I think, to renew curiosity, like refresh your intensity. Because uh, it can get like the this, we'll touch about this. It's not a dream job, is one of the headlines later. Like, there's <laughs> it's easy to burn out because some of the stuff that we do is monotonous. Um, and there's a lot of other reasons that you could burn out, but it's, I think that's kind of fun. You go to a new code base and it's like, wow, I haven't seen any of this before. <laughs> yeah, it it is fun. It can also be, I think, really 
uh, intimidating, especially if you if you're like brought in as a high, as a higher level developer to come into a new code base, and you really have oh, to yeah. admit to the people you're working with, "Hey, I'm I am new at this, not because I'm new at the at the subject matter, but because I'm new at your particular code base." And every particular code base has its own idiosyncrasies, and so it's like you got to be honest with yourself about it's going to take me a little while to ramp up. But I think once you do admit that to yourself and to anybody you're working with, like it makes things go go smoother. Agreed. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I think that's a good lead into the next one, which is domain knowledge is more important than your coding skills. Uh, I have found this to be true in like many, many ways, but it's, it's, it's that if you don't understand the domain that you're working in, you're, you could be the best coder in the world and it wouldn't matter because you're solving the wrong problem. It's, it's like, I, I think about, uh, our friend, Dan, uh, co- you know, f- colleague Dan, who, uh, he, ha- he always had this, this, um, he might've even had like a poster, but it basically said like, solve the problem, then write the code. So it's like, don't, you know, without the, uh, without the, the domain knowledge, the domain knowledge and being able to solve the problem, uh, or I guess I should say like that is the important piece and then writing code it follows that and you should be able to write good code, but like it should, it has to fit into the domain. Yeah. This one was, um, this one really resonated with me because I, um, uh, have, you know, have seen lots of different functions of what you're trying to accomplish, you know, like e-commerce or, um, education platform, um, uh, now totally different things, SaaS stuff, all these different things. And what I've realized uh, a lot of the time is you write the code way late. It's like the last piece of it. After you've written the stories and you know, you've know you estimated them and you've figured out how you're going to solve the customer problem and the code is the very last piece and it's, it's interesting and whatever, but that first part is what I what I'm really in awe of all the time is when people have a really strong domain knowledge and are and are excellent technical um, like engineers because man like the the applica- you, what you need is the Venn diagram you need a deep knowledge of the space that you're in they mentioned something like when you're building a point of sale system for a restaurant you better figure out how the weight people operate you know, basic stuff like that, how inventory is managed, all these different things, because you, you could build the complete wrong solution and you could build this glorious piece of code that solves nobody's problems. And then it's useless. So it's, it's really like the domain knowledge is that's, I think a a key superpower. If you're going, if you're getting into this business or whatever, for even if you're deep in it, it's like the more time you spend learning your customer base and learning the area and the competitors and all that stuff, I think it makes you stronger uh, because you'll end up building the right product, which could save a ton of time in the end. Yeah, I think uh, I think that some organizations uh, devalue the people who can overlap, or at least they devalue the overlap itself between like product thinking or design thinking and engineering. They they want some some organizations want to compartmentalize those things, and they don't want engineers who are gonna also be thinking about the product or or have input on the business or the or the design. And I know that like. You and I, from my experience, we we not only enjoy that, but like see it as actually a pretty important part of the engineering process and and the the not just engineering process, but like the whole business process is being able to have people in their, you know, they who are experts in one domain, but who also have experience and opinions and uh, and can provide value in other domains. And I always see those as like a, a, a triangle. There's like 
engineering, product, and design, and those things should be all working in harmony. But uh, I've seen it happen where some people are basically, they say like, no, no, we're going to be doing the design and the product up front. And then when we're done, we're going to throw it over to engineering and they're going to build it. And like, that is not, I have seen that approach uh, fail. And I've also seen the opposite approach succeed really well, where where everybody's looped in from the beginning. Everybody's really, you know, a tight communication loop. And I've seen that work really well. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of metaphors here, but the one I think about, you could be like an expert woodworker. Um, doesn't mean you're going to build good cabinets in a kitchen. Like you you could build a completely useless setup for somebody that doesn't, doesn't work for anybody. Cause you, you know, I don't know you just need the combination of tech, like the technician, and the the strategic mind, I guess, is a super powerful combination. And yes, product managers, technical PMs, or whatever whatever you call that, wherever you are, does cover most of that. They're like the connection from the customer to the engineer. But that doesn't mean that the engineer shouldn't also index into what they do a little bit. And I think that's that event. Uh, like when you do cross over a little bit, you get super productive conversations because you can be a partner. You like. Why wouldn't you want to partner with good knowledge? Why would you want somebody who's like, no, this is my job. This is your job. Never come over here. I'll never come over there. I guess some yep. teams work that way, but I don't think that that's valuable and like how people want to operate. I think people want to be in close-knit tribes if you can, right? We're all working together, pulling in the same direction, blah, blah, blah. Um, yeah. So, yeah. Um, I'll, I'll go to the next one. Because I think it was there's a hilarious uh, like image in it. It just says writing yeah. documentation is not emphasized hard enough. And there's a little cartoon, and it's like <laughs> two guys, and it's there's a like a cobwebbed, boarded up room with a door that just says documentation. They said, and this is where we keep our docs. And it, it the <laughs> the whole premise here is like universities, boot camps, whatever, give you the technical skills to write the code. Um, however, they typically don't give you the skills or even put put it in your mind that it's important to prioritize writing well-documented, maintainable code. Yeah. Uh, often I think code golfing is like celebrated even, but yeah. writing documentation or writing maintainable documented code is, is the real winner in long-term software development. Yeah. And I would say documentation, you know, I hadn't really thought about this before, but I think documentation is part of maintainable code because it makes getting back into the code, you know, maintainable code, meaning uh, you're able to work on the same piece of functionality for uh, months or years. Having documentation for that allows you an easier inroad back into that code after you've been away from it for a while. Um, I remember when I was kind of first starting out and I was trying to wrap my head around different layers, uh, different, uh, different levels. I think we were uh, talking about interviewing somebody for like a startup that I was working at for a little while. And we were talking about how to, how to think about leveling. And one of the things was a senior engineer or, or like senior plus engineers should have their code documented as well as like solve the problem that we're asking. So it was like, you know, whatever it was some, I think it was a take home, take home exam and you had to solve a problem. And junior engineer should be have like a basic solution, working solution. You know, senior engineer should have like a, a a better architected solution. But like above that, a lot of it comes in. It comes down to documentation and like how well they uh, write. You know, inline documentation or um, uh, you know, like a readme for for the repo. And like that stuff is so important. At the time, I was kind of like, oh, that's kind of a funny. Uh, that's kind of a funny, you know, requirement or criteria. But I, I. 100% see it now because uh, the people who I see uh, 
around, you know, my organization, like who are writing code at a high level, they are documenting that code really well. And it's really important because that code is going to be used and consumed and worked with by a large number of people. And that documentation becomes really important at that point. Yeah, this extends, I would argue, extends beyond just the comments you write in your code. And the documentation, like the readme that you put in there, and extends to uh, what we talked about the other day about like writing good tech docs with uh, why did you even make this choice in the first place? Like writing yep. writing RFCs, requests for comments, writing ADRs, architecture decision reviews, architecture decision record receipts record. Thank <laughs> you. Yeah. I can never remember yeah. the R <laughs> receipts, um, which is basically like after you did the RFC and implemented it, you basically codify that thing in a record. So like, why did, why did we make the choice? Here's the document behind it. And then that stuff, all of that builds the canon of documentation around why you did the things you did. Cause the, the bigger the company or the more, the higher the velocity that your team runs at, you will inevitably end up relitigating decisions like, oh, we built something. Well, let's do this. And then you already had the conversation five times and decided on something different. And then a new person joins and says, you know what we should do is this. And if you didn't write it down, you will have to go through the whole process again. So like it, it goes from the top level of why did you even do the thing all the way down to I wrote the code and here's what it does. Uh, documentation at all levels, I think, is really important. And it's just not something that comes up very often. I feel like you've like learned on the job. Yeah. Um, and there's never, I don't know, there's never standards or what, because there's like a million articles on clean code, but there's like two articles on clean docs. I don't know. Yeah. I, I just don't think it's the, I don't think the corpus is the same size. Maybe that's Definitely anecdotal, not. but it's not, yeah. right? I don't think it is. No, it's, I don't think it is at all. I think it takes some experience of ha of working with undocumented code to make you really appreciate how good docs are. I see writing docs as a almost like a proxy for this person is thinking as a multiplier. Uh, this person is thinking about uh, their code will be consumed by like many other people and how to make those people's lives easier. Um, yeah. So that, yeah, I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, there's this one, uh, one line from this article is like, oh boy, how happy am I when I see proper documentation nowadays? And I have felt that like, I see a good read me and, and um, it tells me what, you know, just what I need to know and not too much information. And I am so happy. I'm like, oh, here, here are the links I need to go see all the monitoring that happens when I, if I'm deploying in like an unfamiliar code base. It's great. I love it. It makes me really happy. <laughs> yeah. I ran into this uh, recently. There's a person on my current team that um, clearly spent a lot of time writing good readmes for how to get up to speed like in a repository and i was going through one the other day and i ran into a problem i was like ah oh, shit and then i look it's like if you run into this problem do this i was oh, like that's so great <laughs> like yeah. <laughs> it just felt like there was like this person just drifted down to my yeah. shoulder and said i have you and then like solved yeah. the problem with me it was incredible that, that feeling is, is really great right I, yeah. I, I love that and that's what good docs feel like. It's like they're watching over your shoulder and like they're right. there to just steering you. Like, you. no, 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 over here. And you yep. go, oh, thanks. You know, it just, you feel safe, right? Um, so I, yeah. I, it's so powerful. The, the joy that you get in the speed, because you don't have to go ask somebody is also yep. really important. So yeah, there's a lot. Yeah. There's like obviously a million reasons why she does.
definitely. Uh, all right, next one. Um, code is secondary. Business value is first. I think some people, I might be wrong here, but I think some people, this might be a hot take. I think some people are much more on the side of like, no, engineering is the is the thing. And like, you know, I think I've talked to people even who who think that like, as engineers, we shouldn't necessarily be thinking about the business. We should be thinking about the engineering. And, you know, I can see that that argument to some extent, but I do think that like, you know, if you are coming at it from the side, I just think it depends on where, where you're coming at it from. Because like, without the without the business, what are you writing code for? Like, what what where do you expect your paychecks to come from that you're writing code for? I mean, th- like that. And that's kind of a rhetorical question. It's kind of a loaded question, I think, because like, you know, people write code for all different kinds of reasons. Uh, but I think you know, within the context of a business, code is probably secondary, and the business value is first. Oh man. Yeah. I know this is, there's tons of people who are probably upset at hearing this. Here's my take on this. If you work in the web or any kind of, yeah, let's say the web or like apps, say you're not doing robotics or curing cancer with like genome software or whatever, and you're selling something at the end of the day, like at whatever that something is and your engineering is not more important than the business. Um, you are a fancy chisel, <laughs> you know, th- like, I, I don't mean that in a mean way, mm-hmm. but engineers are a tool to accomplish a task. So if they could do it without you, they would, and they're trying to, um, you know, th- it, what we do is essentially crud at the end of the day, <laughs> like it <laughs> she- sheathed in many other things. And there's a lot more <laughs> elaborate stuff beyond that. But for the most part, it's accomplishing business goals uh, to sell something. So the business is like, that's it. You don't get paid without the business. Uh, now, again, that flips on its head if you're doing, I don't know, super, I guess there's always business at the end of the day, but it gets a little murkier if you're innovating in computer science concepts to do whatever. I don't know. Yeah. I, I've never touched work like that, but on right. the web, no shot, right? No shot. Right. Yeah, I, I think that's true. A, a murky is a good word for it because it's not like it's not like the business isn't involved at all. Even for you know, even for uh, R and D or academic projects, like there is still somebody paying some bills <laughs> somewhere in that equation. It just becomes much more abstracted from from the the actual money making itself than it is you know than it is when you're running an, an e commerce business where it's like. There, those, those, the code, the code and the business are much more tightly intertwined at, at that level. Um, and yeah, 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 yeah. I think about, uh, I think about like maybe, uh, um, uh, like native, you know, writing code for like it's going to go embedded, uh, embedded code on a chip or something where you need to, uh, it, it's not the same, it's not the same life cycle as, as writing things for the web. You know, it's a lot longer life cycle because you might have, a release that goes out and like ships on a, on a chip. And like, you don't get to ch- touch that code anymore. It's just out there. And that is, that is a really different way to, uh, you know, it's a different way to think about how you write your code. You of course would have to be a lot more careful with certain things. You can't just like kind of ship the MVP and then, and then hot patch it every hour. If you need to, uh, you just don't have that luxury. And so you do need to put a lot more thought into the engineering, but even even in that case, I think the engineering comes back to the business of whatever that is that you're that you're selling. Yeah, and what I I want to 
couch that though, all of what I just said, the caveats, that doesn't mean you do a bad job. Uh, right. Because a lot of the business will require you to, to have scale, to anticipate problems. Like there's so much on your job that complements the business, but it's just always remember that there is a user at the end of the day that like has to buy something for you to succeed. Um, so don't, that doesn't mean you get carte blanche, just write a bunch of shitty stuff. Cause who cares? I'm just right. making money. Yeah. Right. So I wanted, I, I felt like I had to caveat that cause yeah, I took a strong yeah. stance. Yeah. Yeah. I was gonna say, I mean, it also kind of feels like we're taking particularly strong stances on some of this stuff and like, you know, <laughs> cause we're just, it's, hot, it's, it's hot take city right now. Hot take city. It's um, a little bit, it's, I will, I will say asterisk. It's a bit more, my, my, even my own take on this is a bit more nuanced than I think is coming across right now. Yeah. Same. I think um, I'm in like <laughs> podcaster mode where, yeah, <laughs> just hot take city. It, it is funny how there's like a mode that you get into where you're like, I got hot takes. Everybody needs to hear them. <laughs> hot take tornado. Um, okay. <laughs> Speaking of us being bad at this, you'll need to work around <laughs> incompetence. That is uh, another. That's another headline here. Um, it's, it's, this is anywhere. I don't think this is unique to software engineering. And spoiler alert: yeah. the incompetence might be you. You might just be deluding yourself yeah. into thinking you're you're the best one on the team, and in reality, everybody's looking at you like, "What are you effing doing?" Um, so th- this one is sort of, I could take a leave this thing. It says you need to work around incompetence because they'll, they'll like inevitably be somebody who negatively impacts the project and you have to constantly rework your stuff or there's delays, blah, blah, blah. But that is literally anything you do um, is going to happen. This is going to happen. Yeah. What I, this is, this was, a, I just have to say this out loud. When I was younger and I mean like a child, and I saw adults doing stuff. I just assumed they were really good at it. I yeah. assumed when I saw a person wearing a suit or whatever that they they knew what they were doing. The older I get and the deeper I get into career fields and stuff, the more I realize that you can have a position of power and be terrible. And I, I see like the general, I feel like there's a lot of mediocrity across the board because that's normal, right? The bell curve is the biggest in the middle for a reason. Right. Doesn't mean you're bad or good. Just means you're decent, decent <laughs> at your job. <laughs> uh, like it's fine. You're not, like you're not terrible and you're not great. And that's the majority of us, and that's okay. Yeah. But you just the older I get, the more I see that. Like that, it's just so common that it's like okay, they're fine. They have flaws and they have good things. And yeah, it's a it's a, a generic picture. It's a generic picture, and it, and everything you know in in a really good situation. Everybody compliments every everyone else in the way in such a way that like the areas where they are uh, on the far end of the bell curve uh, complement each other and and they can kind of you can work together. Uh, I think about like even when you get a team made up of star players. Like a uh, long time ago, I read uh, an article about uh, you know it sounded like there was a uh, they did some research on a number of companies over many years. The it, the the team doing this research got into. Uh, tech at a really, you know, the time when like um, all of these big companies were just getting started. And so they got a a long-term view into different types of company makeups and how that helped them succeed. And so they would look at a team of like all A plus players. And those teams actually had a lot more problems than some teams that were made up of like kind of like middle ground across the board. And it's because all those, well, one of the reasons, I mean, it's probably complicated, but one of those reasons is because all those A plus players all want to be the star and like, that's not going to work in a team situation. And it just, uh, it, it doesn't, it eat. So yeah, it, that is to say like, if your entire team is on the far end of the bell curve, that can have its own problems too. Yeah. hundred percent. Um, 
I, I do have okay. one other thought about about this. Oh one yeah, we move go on. go go. Um, the yeah, like you, you said, um, you'll need the title. Of this is you'll need to work around incompetence, and you mentioned like it might even be your own. Sometimes I get really uh, like insecure about that, or I get re- I get terrified that like you know I look around and sometimes I get frustrated with with like the various people I have to interface with or, you know, some, some, some team that has, isn't providing me with a thing on, uh, in the timeline that we've agreed on something like that. But then I think about like, what am I doing that other people are <laughs> internally complaining about? Because I'm like, Oh, am I, I know they're, you know, everybody complains about something about somebody. So I, I'm like, Ooh, I hope, so. I hope people are telling me when I'm, when I'm getting on their, when I, you know, when I'm blocking their timelines or whatever. Yeah. I, I can't even, if I start to think all the time about the amount of ineptitude I bring to the table, I think I'd crush myself. <laughs> um, well, so do we want to cover like two more piece or all, do we want to go through all of them? Yeah, let's, let's, let's pick a couple more. Cause we're, we're, uh, we want to keep it tight today. Like, like keep usual, it <laughs> keep it tight. Okay. I'll, I'll, I'll pick one. Um, right. yeah, I'm not going in order here. Yeah. Uh, estimations will be asked even when you don't want to give them. So a, a core principle of engineering for better or for worse is you have to tell people how long it's going to take to do things. And th- even though you have no idea how to do that, uh, after years of doing it, I still don't really know. Um, my method is to cut things down to like the tiniest piece, but it's still all in the ether. You're saying this is yep. generally how I think this project is going to go. I break it up into all these deliverables and then those deliverables I chop up into smaller pieces and I think like, oh, that's a that's a day. And then I add up all the days and I say, it's going to take 50 days. And then that is never true. There's also yep. the difference between developer time uh, and which is like how many hours of developer time there's also wall time, which is a term for like, you might put four hours of engineering work, but then it takes 12 hours to do code review and 20 hours to do QA. So it actually takes three days. My gosh, estimations are the hardest thing you do. They're asked of you all the time. And that's not something I was prepared for is, is how many takes you have to give all the time. Like we give takes in podcasts. You have to give a take constantly. It's like, how long is it going to take? Uh, two months. You know, I don't yeah. know, two months. And then, yeah. it's, and then in two months, like it didn't take two months. Ah, and you're like, oh shit. <laughs> you know, it, it's, and it's just so hard to get better at that. Uh, and that's yeah. literally like most of the job, man. That's yeah, a lot of the job. I mean, yeah. Especially when you get into like tech lead land and, and more senior developer. Yeah. People yeah. are asking you for estimates and they call them estimates for a reason because like they, they, Every project is different. I think that's the reason why all of these estimates can be so hard to estimate is because you're working on previous information and previous projects that have been kind of similar, but like the past is no uh, predictor of the future. There's always going to be, you know, any given project has so many variables that go into it from the people working on the project to the, you know, maybe the business domain to every, I mean, just everything. And, uh, and it, it just becomes so hard to estimate. I do think that the um, that the the you, you're talking about breaking those breaking p- projects down into like the smallest pieces possible. I think there's something to that. I like to uh, when I look at tickets that w- that we're breaking down. I'm, my team actually does this. We we like basically we try and break them down into if the, if it's more than a one if it feels like more than within a one or two day task. We're like let's break it down further. 
let's figure out how to like take this ticket and make it a little bit smaller because the the bigger you estimate a ticket the the more that's like the one of the rules of agile is that uh if you estimate something for uh it's going to take five days uh that is or let's say if you if you estimate something it's going to take 13 days you have way less confidence on that than if you estimate something's going to take two days um so just keep breaking them down i read there's a um there's a there's like a movement uh, I think it's called no estimate. I think it's just called no estimates or something. Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah. Dan, actually the same colleague, Dan uh, talks about this sometimes. And there is a video that I saw. I don't know the methodology behind this research, research but they basically took some projects and they, br- they broke them down like you normally would with uh, in, in the agile methodology, which is uh, Fibonacci numbers. So you have some tasks that are going to take one point and then two points and points roughly equate to like a day or whatever. It's like it's like an, sort of an arbitrary amount of work. But they did it like that and, and, and estimated based on Fibonacci sequence. So if you say something is going to take 13 points, that means it's 13 times as big as something that's going to take one point. Uh, they then went back and they broke it down by, uh, a, a se- I forget this, what the second way they broke it down. But the third one was just one point per ticket. They just gave every ticket one point. They like took all the features that they wanted to build. They gave it a ticket and it was like, no, there was no est- there was no actual estimation involved. It was just literally the number of tasks in the project, and that turned out in this study to be a better indication of how long the project actually took <laughs> than when you go through all the effort of of like, you know, as a group figuring out how much how much uh, how many points something is estimated for. I hear tech leads gently weeping. I know uh, in the background. Yeah, I am. So estimation, this is a tangent now, but estimation was removed from the Agile Manifesto, the, the, the new edition. So there, oh, the, con- the concept of estimation, I believe, was eliminated from where it originally came from, um, which is sort of like, uh, well, Agile is not Scrum necessarily, but like Scrum is basically you break the tasks down, you estimate them, you pull them in, you have like a certain goal and all that. Uh, but it's gone now. So like the, the concept of estimation is now an artifact that we just carry on as like a bloated corpse. We just carry around. <laughs> we got to estimate things. I get the concept that you need to tell people roughly when you can expect feature delivery to happen yeah. because you need to like, you need to plan around that. You need to plan yeah. how you like uh, voice to your customer and stuff like that. But again, I always assume a 25% risk factor. Mm-hmm. And what, how much of that risk are you willing to take? So if it's 25% of one point is a couple hours, you know, 25% mm. of 10 points is days. So mm-hmm. like if, if, if you want someone, if someone doesn't want to break a task down, I say, how much risk are you willing to accept? Because the, the bigger the task or the, the like approximate estimation of that task, the larger the risk factor you're assuming. And that if you're comfortable with that, then that's okay. But you have to know that that thing could dilate one way or the other by X amount of days at this point versus yeah. X amount of hours. And I think I, I would prefer the lower risk solution. Um, yeah. But not that's everybody feels really, that way. Yeah. Well, that's a really good way to look at it because, because I think it, that puts it in a little bit more concrete terms. You know, if I'm, if I'm being asked to estimate something, I'm like, I don't know, 10 points. Sure. Then, but then somebody comes back and says like, okay, well, you know, uh, if you take a 25% risk factor, how does that change things? Because then it puts things into a little bit more concrete terms. I, I've read this book, uh, Thinking in Bets by Annie Duke. She's like a famous poker player. Great book. Uh, and it's all about 
uh, thinking in percentages. It's all about thinking rather than just like this sort of binary, yes, this thing will happen or no, it won't. You think about what's the likelihood that this thing will happen. Is it 60-40? Is it uh, 95-5? And when you, th- when you force yourself into like thinking about things in those percentages, you, I, I find that my, my like, uh, relationship with the, with the problem changes a little bit. It makes me think about things, uh, for one thing, I think it makes me um, have a, a, a more visceral reaction to the fact that it might not go the way that I want it to because it it puts it into your mind. Oh, there's a 30% chance that this is not going to go the way I want it to. And that's actually like a lot bigger than than I think it is. Oh, I want to read that book. That's really good. I got to pick that up. Um, okay. You want to pick the next one? Yeah. So uh, this next one, it's kind of related actually. The next one is you work with uncertainty most of the time. So this is like... You know, this only becomes stronger the further you go in your career, because like an L1 or, you know, somebody coming in fresh into their career uh, at a new company, uh, they're probably going to be told what to do. They're going to be told what problems need to be solved, uh, maybe even how to solve that problem. And they just need to go write the code. And that's kind of like your 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 happy path uh, fresh out of fresh out of your, your fret, you got your fresh CS degree in your hand and you're just like solving the problems that other people have, or uh, sorry, you're, you're writing the code that solves the problems that other people have defined that other people have like solved. But like, as you get on your career, the problems are just going to be problems. And you're like, well, now I need to figure out how to solve this problem before I actually go to write the code. Um, there's one line in here that I was like, oh, that's a good, that's a good line is uh, writing your first line of code on a task can take weeks. And that might sound weird uh, or it might sound f- like funny to some people. It might sound like, uh, like uh, how are you being productive if it takes you uh, weeks to write your first line of code on a task? But like the whole, it's I mean, the same thing we said before. It's like f- solve the problem and then write the code. Because if you start writing the code, too quickly before you've really fully understood the problem, uh, you know, asterisk. I mean, there's some, you know, there's some bounds here. Cause like sometimes for me helping starting right, the code can help me work through a problem, except I know that some of that code could be, uh, throw, throw away or I'll, I'll like go back and undo some of it. But, um, you really want to understand the problem first. And yeah, it's just, it, I have found it to be true that, that uh, there is a lot of uncertainty in the problems that we're, that you're, that you're solving. Yeah, there's that old term, um, heavy is the head that wears the crown. And the the further you go, the higher the levels, the more like you, you want to level up for whatever, you know, to make more money or something. But you get paid more because you get paid to solve people's bigger problems. And that just means that there's no answer. There's more questions. And what the end of the day is, you're getting paid to make calls, like to make decisions and say like, you know, we're going to yep. just pick this path. I think this is the right one. I have a reasonable degree of confidence. Here's why. Uh, but there's like a thousand ways that you could have picked, right? And that's that's the heavy as the head. Like you just have to pick one and commit to it for good reason. And I'm not saying you just randomly pick it out of an effing hat, but yeah. you got to do your research and then you use your your skill. Um, there's this, there's a pro tip here for me, or that's helped me with this stuff is in a sea of ambiguity, I like to define invariance first and get buy-in on what those are. And an invariant is something that you assume is never changing. It's something that mm-hmm. is axiomatically true. So they're axiomatic. That's a, that's a double, that's saying an axiom is a 
universal truth. An axiom, axiomatically true is universal truth, truth. Um, <laughs> but you basically, it's in like your a, problem space- It's like space, an ATM machine. Or a PIP plan. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) anyways you have to this is the pro tip is you you find a series of things that reduce your ambiguity that you just uh, you get everybody to agree on we're going to assume this is true so like you take your system and you say we're going to assume that we have this amount of uptime we're going to assume that we have to have you know we we're using like this data structure we're going to assume we're using this database you like you just start making decisions to knock down that scope and then get everybody to agree to those things and put them on paper. And then that cuts down your, like the amount of ambiguity that you have to deal with. Cause I think the biggest part of this is how to cut away at that fog uh, as much as possible. And along the way, make people remember that they said yes to that. So you have to write it down. Uh, but that's, yeah. that's my way of like dealing with this, the uncertainty. So the next one, the last one I'm going to cover, uh, cause we're at a crisp 44 minutes already. Yep is um it's not a dream job now this is this one is complicated to me um they this is a, a headline of things they didn't teach you about software engineering it's not a dream job nothing is a dream job first off you've learned that there are rare rare things that are truly like just joyful all the time also it's tough for me yes there are hard things about software development some of the things they call out in here is it's hard work you know, you're, you're constantly barraged by bug requirements and pressures of delivery cycles and stuff like that, but we're also not in the salt mines. So I don't really want to say it's that hard. Um, (laughs) You know, you have, you might get carpal tunnel, watch out. Um, Coming from, I I came from a different background. So Joe did it. You had a different job before this. I've had many different, we both had many different jobs before this. So one of my previous roles was as a, non-commissioned officer in the United States Army Infantry. So when I see like, oh, this is tough, <laughs> I think like, <laughs> like <laughs> you know, I'm not saying it's not hard. I just mean you get paid a lot. Like generally speaking, a software engineer makes a good living and it's a, it's a job that doesn't require you to literally break your back unless you sit all day and do that on purpose because you don't exercise. Or something. So it's not that bad. So I would say I don't actually agree with this one. I think in terms of jobs, it's a it's a good job. If you have a if you have a, a belief that there is a dream job for you, I'm going to shatter that for you because capitalism <laughs> it doesn't exist. Uh, there is no dream job unless you're like the one guy who does exotic turtle watching in Hawaii and takes people, you know. And even he's probably like this fucking sucks, man. These tourists suck. You know, even that person's probably disenchanted yeah. with their role. Yeah. He's in my he's in my good news today. He's in my good news cruise. There's a turtle turtle watcher that that, uh, is there really? No, uh, no. Oh. <laughs> um, <laughs> I was gonna say, what a yeah. coincidence! <laughs> I know. No, I do think that's a good thing to remember, though. That like, yeah, there's no nothing's gonna be a dream job. And when I was reading this section, it reminded me of another book that I read a long time ago. Uh, I might have mentioned it on the show before, but it's called uh, "So Good They Can't Ignore You." It's by Cal Newport, the same guy we we talked about his book last week, Deep Work. Um, so he wrote another book that the premise is sort of like don't follow your passion to find your career. Like, you know, there's always this advice that's Mm. like, in order to find the career that you should be doing, just follow your passion. It's like the most common career advice I think ever given. And his whole book sort of like uh, flips out on his head. And and I actually like, I really did not like this book the first time I read it. But uh, looking back after my career change, I think 
uh, I realized that it like planted the seed for my career change. And I'm just super glad that, that it, uh, I guess impacted me in the way that it didn't. Um, because I think about this a lot when, when, uh, you know, when I'm faced with, uh, something new that I'm kind of like, well, what is this new thing? What is this new project going to be? Or what is this new position going to be? It sounds boring. It sounds like there's going to be a lot of tedious work in here. And I stop myself and I think actually like there's going to be something in here that you are going to be able to uh, dig into or you're going to be able to use to like grow yourself personally or professionally. Like there's always going to be something there. And my takeaway from the book is like, uh, yeah, it it might not be a dream job, but there's going to be something in there that you can cultivate an interest in. If you can find something interesting in this job, even though it's not a perfect job, uh, that can be rewarding and sometimes deeply rewarding over the course of a career. Yeah, I couldn't say it any better. That's it. That's it. Um, all right, I, I have one more. Uh, we'll uh, we'll do this one quick. Uh, it's assume everything has bugs. I think this is always a good idea to like assume not just the code that you're writing has bugs, but the code that your you know code is built on any kind of platform, any libraries you're using, even like CPU and hardware. Uh, everything can go wrong. And so like, this is not to say write your code too defensively because that can run into its own problems, but like, you know, just, just write your code with the assumption that it's not going to be perfect. Um, I think about one thing, there's like a, a, a phrase that comes to mind when I think about, um, code going wrong, which is, uh, which is like, what happens if like you send a request and when you're, while you're waiting for a response, the world, the world burns down and like, you know, think about what would happen to, <laughs> I mean, it's kind of a silly premise <laughs> because then it's like, what happens to your, to like the rest of your code, but it's like, uh, you know, what, what, how can you, pr- how can you, uh, protect against, against like something happening during that space where you've sent a request, but you're waiting for the response. And what if like some undefined behavior happens then that's like a good sort of starting place to think about, uh, to think about how to write a little bit of more defensively. Uh, write your code a little bit more defensively. But I think uh, when I read Assume Everything Has Bugs, my mind goes to um, goes to this idea that like uh, just pr- pr- do as much preventative coding as you can and protective coding and write as many tests as you can to be comfortable. But like when you ship that code, it, there's going to be a bug in it somewhere. And so like that is to say, make sure you have stuff on the other end of shipping like, you know, after you've shipped that will tell you where your bugs are, like, you know, make sure you have monitoring put in place and make sure you have logging and, uh, alerts set up. So, so that like you, your code doesn't have to be absolutely flawless when you ship it, because when something does go wrong, you'll just, you're going to fix it. You're going to like find it and fix it. Yeah. I think that's a good one. I, I actually had, um, I was working with somebody today in a pair session and we had to write a complicated regex. And I said, the second you write a regex into code, you've written a bug. Like I, <laughs> I can almost, I can almost guarantee it. <laughs> There's no, I've never like seen a regex that doesn't have some failure state. Um, if you're writing some, something in the cache, you're writing bugs. Pretty much all software is just writing bugs that are accompanied by working things. Uh, <laughs> there was like a, the, the comic in this, there's a comic in every one of these things in this article. So you should go look, go look at the comics. Most yep. of them are Dilbert spoiler alert, but this <laughs> one is not Dilbert. Uh, it's just like, what are you doing? And then this person says, I removed all the bad code from the app. And then all that's left is just hello world. Press any key to continue. 
which is the joke. Like there's always, you're just going to, with all the software you write, you will concurrently ship bugs. Uh, but so that the point about what's your monitoring, what's your testing, uh, what's your quality assurance strategy, all that stuff is super important because to try and imagine that you're not shipping bugs and to put your head in the sand is a great strategy to just like push that responsibility to your customer to report it to you and they won't. They just will stop using your thing right. and you'll lose money, right? So if you think like, oh, someone's magically just going to tell me when something's broken, they, they just won't. They, they'll just stop yeah. using it. You might get one person who writes like a Yelp review that says your, your shit sucks. But the, <laughs> like the majority of people, they don't even have time to like make dinner for themselves. They're not going to send you an elaborate bug report like about yeah. what's going wrong. So having all that in place so that you can protect yourself from yourself, I think is really valuable. Yeah. And it's not to say like, don't focus on code quality, because of course, like the first thing you should focus on is code quality, but there's yeah, like absolutely. that, that can be taken to an extreme where, you know, you want to write well-architected code and clean code. But like, if you take that too far, you, you end up focusing on trying to get things perfect and you probably maybe lose sight of some other things, including like shipping on time. Like, <laughs> you know, I, I don't yeah. know. It's just, uh, yeah. There is one, um, I know we're we're way over now, so we're leaning in. Um, Do it. But this one's not in the article. But I wanted to add this as like a oh, I like it as like a it's like a Coop's corner moment in the article. <laughs> this is unique to now. One thing they don't tell you about software engineering is remote work, particularly in software. I guess I don't know remote work in general. This is to me. This isn't to everybody. Is isolating. There is. Yeah. Um, it's isolating because like I, I came up in the office. So, and I have like a fairly extroverted personality. So this isn't going to apply to everybody, but human connection is valuable to most humans. Not everybody feels that way, but um, this is like, you're working on a computer and you will go long stretch. If you're an individual contributor, you go long stretches where you just never see a human. Like if you're working in your house, like if someone doesn't mm-hmm. live with you, you'll just never see anybody. Um, yep. And that is, there's a lot missing there. It's it's really tough because like in when we were in the office, um, we would go make coffee. And I remember that's how I met our mutual friend, Evan, was uh, we bonded over. He <laughs> told me how shitty my coffee maker was. Uh, actually, I remember specifically I was making a French press and he said, you couldn't pay story. me. You couldn't yeah. pay me to drink a French press. And I, he <laughs> called it sludge. And I was like, okay. <laughs> This guy's a jerk, <laughs> but realistically that kicked off me learning a lot from him. And he was far, far above my level at the time. You know, he was like a, you know, basically a principal engineer, very senior engineer. And by just rubbing shoulders with this person, accidentally drinking coffee, like drink, getting coffee, getting, you know, going out to lunch or whatever, you learn a ton and you build those connections. Right now, if you're coming into this industry, you are going to have to work extra hard to pick up those pieces from your mentors. Um, you know, and again, this is for an extroverted person. I know this isn't for everybody, but I do think it's particularly difficult for people coming in. I'm seeing this on my team. I've seen this on other teams. People who came up in the remote first world, I think there's a lot missing there because so much magic happens at the whiteboard. So much magic happens like at coffee after the meeting, you know, stuff like that. Uh, you just learn a lot there. You you gain a lot of knowledge and you you work better as a team sometimes. I, I don't know. That's that's my other note. That's why it's hard. Yeah. Yeah. And you, and you make connections and of course you make connections on, on remote work too. There are some companies that apparently do remote work really well. And I, I, I would love to see what that looks like. And I would love to see the culture that 
you know, the some company like I know there's this one automatic is the one that it, I think gets kind of um, that's like the most well-known distributed yeah, culture. Yeah. And, um, you know, so we've worked with people like like uh, like our Critter, our, our both of our former manager. His name is his real name's not Critter. But that's all right. We'll call him. We call him Critter. Uh, he like has made good friends over a remote first working environment. And like I, 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 um, I also struggle sometimes with the remote first. I think I've gotten used to it. I think a lot of us have gotten used to it, but I do. When I think back to certain times when you're, you're, you're all in the office and yeah, you're just bumping into people at coffee or you're kind of like it's Friday afternoon and you're kind of like, you roll your chair over and you're having a conversation and somebody else from some completely unrelated, uh, you know, department comes in and you're all just kind of like, there are ideas that, that, um, that come together that wouldn't normally, you have to go out of your way when you have a remote first culture. Uh, yeah. I think people do it with try to do it with things like these random coffee chats where they'll take everybody in a in the office and like randomly pair them up. They'll have some Slack bot that randomly pairs them up for like a coffee session every week or whatever like that. I, I've never uh, done that. I've, I don't know how well that works, but yeah. Anyways, that's it for me. Anything else you wanted to cover in the article before we move that's on? That's it. Yeah, I think we can move on. And we will be moving on to... What are you learning? <laughs> Evan's doing the air drums right now. <laughs> I like the air <laughs> I drums. I can't help it. I love air drumming. <laughs> it's really satisfying. So, what, what are you learning besides air drumming? Yeah, I am learning about... Uh, I'm, I'm becoming more intimately aware with GraphQL and the nature of how it resolves things and it's called the n plus one problem um and that's data loaders. really talking about data loaders talking about data loaders or yeah data loader yeah data loader and how queries get batched and all this stuff there's just a lot of mystery that i think i never really had to know um with graphql and now i'm, I'm like working with a graphql api and I've, there's just missing parts of my knowledge that have caused me to have misses in my estimations. And that's like, that's always fun. Like I was, I, I just whiffed on something because I didn't realize the recursive nature of how a call was going to play out and then learned that the hard way, um, mm -hmm. hit a throttling limit from the underlying database and then it blew up my <laughs> whole implementation. So then you got to figure out a way to get around that. So that's what I'm learning now. And if you have any resources, anybody about deep GraphQL knowledge and how to get to the inner workings of your data loader and, and how queries get batched and how to get visibility into all that stuff, which is a tough one for me, you know, feel free to reach out. Yeah, I actually, I remember like the first time I was, was uh, exposed to data loader, uh, the pattern. Uh, and it was like, we had a, a, a visual, we were using one of these like GraphQL playgrounds. And we had a visual where you could see the trace where you see every request and how long it takes in a little like waterfall pattern. And we had, and it was taking a long time. It was like, I, I don't remember how, it was like, a, I don't know, five seconds or something like that. And then we added the data loader. We added this data loader pattern, which caches uh, result, you know, basically to avoid making the same request more than once, once you make that one request, it will get cached and you can, so you cut down on all this time. Uh, and I remember seeing this graph go from like five seconds with a huge waterfall to like a second and a half, or maybe even like 500 milliseconds. And it just all compressed. And it really like crystallized in my mind how powerful this, this pattern is. Um, 
Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. What about you? Uh, I am. So you recommended this book to me and I've been reading through this book and it is great. It's, uh, it's called, um, what's it called? System design. It's like system design volume two. Um, it's system design interview. That's what it is. System design interview, uh, volume two. And I just like thinking about system design. We've talked on this podcast before about like, you know, crafting interview questions and system design questions. And like that whole domain is just, it's interesting to me. And this book is fantastic because it deep dives into some of these systems, system design problems that are not just like build a URL shortener. They're like, you know, build, uh, build Google maps or something like that. So, you know, some of the, that one is so good. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Sorry. Go ahead. And yeah, just the, the data structures that you use for breaking down a global map system. They're so there's, it, I don't know there's, it's, it, I really nerded out, really nerded out on that one, but, uh, but yeah, it's a great book. Um, so that's what I'm, that's what I'm learning. I am in awe of the engineers who actually do that type of stuff. Uh, and I know like anything is obtuse and seems impossible when you don't do it every day, right? You know, especially you hear somebody speaking French, you don't speak French, it's mystical. And then you learn French, you go, oh, they're just talking about bagels. Uh, yeah. You know, it, yeah. It's, a, it's the same deal, right? But it's so <laughs> cool. That, but yeah. ba- bagels. <laughs> no, it's a ba- okay, maybe croissant. Uh, but when I read that book, it's, it's aspirational to me because I think there's people out there doing this stuff. It's so cool. And I mean- not for nothing, you're a great systems design interviewer. Uh, I've been exposed to Joe's skill as an interviewer for systems design. And I can only imagine that makes you a great systems design interviewee as well, because you get a mind for it. So this is it's cool to see you like dive in. I'd love to, you know, do like a systems design interview again with you now after reading that book, because I imagine you've only leveled up from there. Um but That'd the, be fun. the who is it? It's uh I forget the author's name. Yeah, Alex, Alex, Alex Zhu, you, Zoo. Alex, you, Zhu, you. Anyways, um, we can put a link in the show notes. But mm-hmm. if you're uh, like going to do interviews or anything like that, actually, I think it's valuable to read, regardless of if you're going to interview or not. Yeah, uh, just to give you more exposure to different systems designs. It's just a cool concept. It's like a, it's a fun read. I found it to be really, really good. Yeah, it's great. Well, on that note, we're gonna. Uh, we're gonna kick off our, gonna kick off our, our our quiet ending, our normally quiet ending. Sail away on the good news cruise. And I think right here we're gonna introduce. I'm gonna do a record scratch. Maybe I'll throw a little a little Scott K uh, Foghorn in there. Because it's time for good gripes. It's time for good gripes. We ain't got no good news. There's no good news. <laughs> <laughs> this is not a good news week in tech, let's be honest. Yeah. Uh, it hasn't been good. What are you griping about, Joe? I am going to gripe about... Uh, <laughs> it's kind of a silly gripe, but um, man, so I've... Uh, as I've gotten older, I th- I can only assume it's be as I've gotten older. Maybe I have some some something else weird going on, but I have been playing certain video games and they have been making me motion sick. And the one that is uh, particularly <laughs> particularly bad this week is the game Splatoon. I don't know if you've ever played this game Splatoon. I have. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, super fun, which is really frustrating when I play it for 15 minutes and I'm like, Oh, I feel so <laughs> nauseous. Uh, <laughs> and oh, I, no. I, 
been able to like find some workarounds, but like, man, I don't know. It's just like, you, there's so much motion in it. There's so much like swiveling around and stuff. The other game that the, the game that I first noticed this on was Katamari Damacy. If you've ever played that game, you're like rolling a bit. It's super fun. I love that game. And it's super like uh, creative. You're, uh, you're rolling this big ball of stuff that keeps collecting more and more things. And so the ball gets bigger and bigger. And the goal is to make it like a certain size and then you level up and then the next level is you're trying to make it even bigger. And so you're at the end, you're rolling up like buildings and cities and stuff. But the whole thing is kind of the same thing. You're flipping around and the whole, the camera is like flipping around back and forth. And uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's not fun. Wow. Yeah. You, that is definitely like an old man problem. I know. Um, where like all of a sudden I get motion sick when I play these oh. children's video games. That's such a bummer though because it's a sense of joy. You'll have to go back to 2D games like Tetris or whatever. Um, I will have to quote go back to them because I certainly never play those 2D games anymore. I mean, I definitely do. Uh, <laughs> I still love. There's a place by where I live in Salem called Bit Bar, and it's a um, it's a you know, now it's a big, but it used to be a really small bar, but they moved. It's a bar where all the drinks are video game themed and all the food is video game themed down to the fact that the tater tots are shaped like Tetris pieces. Whoa, and awesome. and the bar has like 300 old school box games, like, uh, you know, Tetris and all, all these old like Atari box games. It's got X-Men and, you know, all these fun 80s arcade games and stuff. So I still, I mean, we love that place. We go there all the time. That's great. Yeah. Uh, what What's on your gripe plate? This week. All right. I got a, uh, let's see. I got a little gripe and a big gripe. My little gripe is that we've been, software has been in the web for like 20 million years, right? About 30 years. We still haven't really standardized on unit test all the way to end to end test and what the f those things mean and what <laughs> level they are. And like, I just, I feel like I keep having this conversation over and over and over again for the last like six years about what's a unit test and what's an integration test and what's an end-to-end yep. test and what's a system test and what's a smoke test and what's a regression test. And any other industry has standards and certifications yeah. and processes for this stuff. Like you think mechanical engineers are arguing over what a cam is or <laughs> what you know what heat is. There's just like there's things that we should agree on and publish somewhere, but yet everybody would then say we're lacking innovation, but the web is a mature platform at this point, And yet we lack any of the, the hallmarks of maturity. Uh, that's just a huge bummer to me. Yeah. So I run up against this all the time and we're going to, we're going to continue to run. No one will ever take a stand. There is not going to be even ECMA, like the people who make JavaScript still have to concede all the time to the web platform so yeah uh, yeah well I, I don't think the problem is that nobody's taking a stand i think it's the everybody's taking a stand i think there's no, like point, every point, yeah you know it's like it's not that there's it's the problem of like there's no it's not there's ju not one rule it's the there's like 14 rules and now we have a 15th and like the you know it's the, everybody has kind of their own idea and i'm no i'm guilty of this myself i have my own ideas of what yeah me too you know, all of those tests are and and uh in order to standardize, I think it's just the, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, yes, I am fully on board. We need to elect right. the mayor of the internet. I don't know who that is, <laughs> the but we need the to. The mayor of testing. The mayor of testing. We need to have figureheads here, uh, the czar of testing, whatever you want to call yourself. And everybody yep. has to listen. And then you can still have your opinions, but they're just wrong or different, you know, and then you get to like fight against the mayor. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's my little gripe. My okay. big gripe is tech layoffs 
And uh, <clears throat> I don't want to get too deep, but there's always some that says people are like, I can't believe people. And then there's some that's like, well, it's a business. Like you're a that. I'm just like, shut the up. <laughs> Okay, well, now we're at the end of our episode. Uh, thank you, dear listener. Oh, if you've made it this far, Adam, thank you. Yeah, I was for commenting I, I realized, on our website. Ah, oh, should have yes. said this earlier. I know. I I realized this. Uh, I realized this like right as we started the the to talk about um, what are you reading? Um, yeah, uh, Adam, we really appreciate the the uh, suggestion. And I think it's a great suggestion. Uh, I, I don't know how you feel about Evan because, like, you are—you've <laughs> done a lot of work. The suggestion was was do an episode on cookies, and I think it's a great idea because, like, cookies are a, a deep topic, and Evan, you know a lot about them. Um, mm. But uh, <laughs> I also know that, like, it's like you know, I, I I don't know how you feel about like about talking about cookies, but I no, I, I mean, I, we we got a suggestion. We're gonna do the suggestion. We yes. we've been asking for them. We got one, Adam. It's coming. I don't know what the format is going to be exactly if we do a whole episode on cookies or if we just do like a, maybe we do a little new segment where we just talk about something we've learned in tech or something like that. Because I do have a lot to say about cookies. The original take was you shouldn't use them and Adam asked why, you know, Mm -hmm. why shouldn't you use them? So I think I really appreciate your engagement, Adam. Also, I, I always loved working with you, Adam. You're awesome. So, uh, really, yep. really cool to see you comment on the website that like made my day. Yeah. Um, me too. I even, uh, yeah. We texted Joe. It was like 10 o'clock and I was like, someone comment. I got really excited. So it's coming. Uh, so yep. look out for that. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well with that, I think we're going to head out and, um, Evan, any last words? Oh, you got to, uh, please star heart. Be, please be like Adam and, uh, and leave a suggestion. Yes. Uh, leave a comment, a question. Uh, yeah, Starheart favorited up. Uh, leave a review. Yep, we at runtimerundown.com. Uh, if, you, if you missed all that, runtimerundown.com. Go there and do all that stuff. Leave the suggestion, all, all those <laughs> things. Listen to us. Thank you very much for listening. Please keep doing it and tell your friends. Uh, we really like doing it, so we want to keep going. Yep. See you next week. <laughs>